Good morning, Artisan. It's so nice to be back with you in this way, in front of this liturgically purple backdrop, uh, appropriate for Advent season. I haven't been here like this preaching for several months now. I took a bit of time away this fall because Matt and I had a baby in September. Her name is Maggie. She's 12 weeks old this weekend. I really hope you get to meet her soon, or at least before she's in kindergarten. <laughs> oh. I know, <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> And now my first sermon back and I have been asked to preach on pain and suffering in the body. So today, I'm just gonna tell you how I pushed a nine pound baby out of my body this fall. I am assuming that's what Nelson wanted when he gave the postpartum preacher this topic. I'm kidding, kind of. Partly because I was in labor for three days so there's just way too much material there for a 20 minute sermon. But I did think about sharing just that today because I don't want to speak in abstractions about our real felt and embodied experiences of pain. Christ's incarnation, which is the central focus of Advent, demands that we don't speak in just abstractions about our real felt pain. Because the incarnation wasn't an abstraction. It's not just a neat theory. It was and is an embodied reality, one framed by mess blood and placenta and a baby's fluctuating heartbeat through the birth canal at the start, all that pain of being born, and then the brutal suffering of a bloody capital punishment at the end. Which is of course why we're spending this Advent talking about our bodies and why today we're talking about the pain and suffering of being a body. Because the crucified, persecuted Christ is too familiar with suffering in his own body to inspire a faith and practice that ignores pain, that sweeps it away. If we ignore our pain and suffering, we ignore a fundamental part of the incarnation. And yet, I do think that a certain caution around speaking about suffering can be good, particularly if we tend to approach the conversation with the common question of why do our bodies suffer? Why? In the book of Job, Job's friends are quick to theorize why Job is suffering. Job has lost everything in a brutal way, lost property, wife, children, health. And as you might know, Job's friends offer theories as to why these things have happened. Theories that are insufficient at best and problematic at worst. You must have sinned to deserve this, they say. They are unable to sit in the mystery of Job's suffering with him. So instead, they try and reason his pain into their limited worldview. We do this today too, don't we? We offer weak responses to suffering and its complex unknowns. In our nervousness around other people's pain, we give quick platitudes like, God won't give you more than you can handle, or it's all part of God's plan, or what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. That last one is a great Kelly Clarkson song, but a terrible thing to say to someone who just got diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. We say these things because we're uncomfortable with the mystery of suffering. We struggle to reconcile it with God's goodness, so we try and make it comprehensible. Which is the opposite of what the authors of Job do. Towards the end of the book of Job, God enters the dialogue. Chapter 38 begins. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Or, as some translations say, out of the whirlwind. I love that image. 
Here, God is positioned within the storm, in the whirlwind, speaking from that place, which tells me that the authors of Job didn't think God was adjacent to chaos and suffering, nor above it, but rather able himself to be with us in it. From the storm, God asks Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. These verses remind Job of his creatureliness and the inherent limits of being a creature. Some things are just not ours to know. But these verses also remind us that even when life seems tumultuous, the creation story holds true. There is a creator. The world was fearfully and wonderfully made. And even in the whirlwind of inexplicable, unresolved suffering, these things don't change. But we don't get to solve the mystery of pain. I think the Christian faith is less interested in why we suffer and more interested in what we do with our suffering, more interested in how we face our pain and the pain of the world. Our bodies are wired to require attention to pain. When we try and run from it, our bodies work really hard to direct attention back towards our suffering. Often when we don't deal with social or emotional pain, it manifests physically. Suppressing anguish only drives unresolved pain deeper, which then surfaces in our body. Psychologists and medical doctors know this from research, but you probably know from your own experience that if we ignore things like anxiety or grief, they show up in our bodies in the form of hives, nausea, headaches, panic attacks, anything that demands attention. Our bodies aren't the only thing that ask us to face our pain, though. Our faith is a tradition steeped in a critical attention to suffering. I recently heard Otis Moss III describe Christianity as a tradition of hope unafraid to face horror, a tradition of possibility unafraid to stare down pain. I love that. Perhaps this is because we know that pain isn't the final word, or maybe it's because Christ's way was to be physically close to those who suffer, to touch, to seek out, to eat with. Either way, ours is a faith unafraid to ask, how do we respond to our suffering and the suffering of our world? The incarnation shows us how God responds to our suffering. Christ's life is a constant, compassionate experience of and response to humanity's pain. The pain in our bodies, the pain in our minds, the pain in our relations. I love how this response is illustrated in the book of John. Throughout the Gospels, we learn of Christ's special friendship with three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And John 11 opens us by telling us that the brother in this family, Lazarus, he's sick. Jesus is in another town when Lazarus falls ill, so Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus about this sickness. Lord, the one you love is sick, they write. And a few days later, Lazarus dies. Jesus heads to Bethany to be with Mary and Martha in their grief. And when Mary hears that Christ has arrived in her town, she jumps up and runs out to go meet him. John writes, chapter 11, verse 32, if you want to follow along. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. This passage is often referenced as a text that best illustrates Christ's humanity. See, he lost a loved one too, we say. He knew that kind of grief. And yes, it's absolutely showing that, and that is a crucial part of the incarnation. But this text also illustrates how Christ is present to us amidst the pain, our pain, of being human. Notice how it's after Jesus sees Mary's grief that he becomes deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The Greek word for troubled here comes from the verb terasso, which, while primarily meaning emotionally troubled, is elsewhere used to describe water that's stirred up or water that's rolling or agitated. Terasso, then, as a feeling, is the embodiment of that stormy sea. It's a tsunami of painful emotions. I think that by placing this outpour of Christ's emotion where he does, John could be indicating another layer to Christ's grief. That here, Jesus not only grieves his own loss, but Mary's too. Here, Christ is broken open to Mary's pain, able to really feel it. And because of this compassion, his body is made present to her suffering in a powerful and essential way. Neurologically, we experience physical pain and social pain in the same way. Often we think one is embodied, the physical pain, and the other isn't, the social pain, but both fire up our brain in the exact same way. The central nervous system experiences the pain of being rejected or isolated or grief-stricken in the same way as if all that loneliness were acutely physical. Last week at our mega Zoom gathering, Caitlin said in the chat feature, I miss you all so much it aches. Given the physiological connection between physical and social pain, I think that's actually a really good way to say it. And here, grieving her brother, Mary too is aching. Grief is firing up her brain as if she were in physical anguish, which is a hard and scary feeling to sit with. You probably know how the story of Lazarus's death ends. It doesn't end in death, which is important because it shows Christ's power over death foreshadowing his own resurrection. But before the triumph of raising Lazarus from the grave, Jesus sits with Mary in her pain, and with his own. He could have rushed to it, like a cheap magician afraid of disappointing his audience, could have frantically said, don't worry, I'll fix this, uh, that's what I'm here to do, boom, raised. But instead, he allows a beat to pass. He sits and he grieves with his friends, lets the agitated waters wash over all of them together. In order to sit with our pain well for the long game of healing, emotions need to be felt like waves. That's language that Hillary gave me. She explained that we need to feel emotion like a waveform all the way from one side to the other in order to be able to move through it. If we try to run away from an approaching wave, if you can picture it, we'll get caught in its tangle. But if we sit with the feeling, even though it's scary, we can walk through it for the sake of healing. And our ability to sit with the pain 
isn't dependent on the right words nor a sound theological explanation. No, we're usually able to sit with the wave of pain because someone else sits with us in it so that we don't get stuck in the unbearable loneliness of that emotion. Our bodies simply weren't made to weather pain alone. Here in John 11, Mary gets to suffer alongside her rabbi. Together they feel the wave of pain, they weather the agitated waters of grief. I think this is what Christ is like to us in our pain too. When we try to weather pain alone, whether physical or social pain, our perception of suffering actually increases drastically. In birth work, they talk about the pain-tension-fear cycle. So the more afraid you are during labor, the more your physical pain actually increases. It works like this. When you feel anxious or unsafe, you activate your body's fight or flight mode, which sends all sorts of unhelpful adrenaline through your blood, tightening every muscle to prep your body to fight or fly. Because you're so tense, then the contractions actually become more painful, which of course perpetuates more fear. Fear, tension, pain, repeat. When you're trapped in this escalating cycle, you're not as able to tap into all the beautiful hormones that your body produces to make labor more bearable. Things like endorphins and that sweet, sweet oxytocin. <laughs> A good and trusted support team, people around you who you love and know and trust, that's one of the key things to keep a laboring body from spiraling in this cycle. Okay, here's where you actually do get a tiny bit of my birth story because I was really fortunate to have just that, to have a great support team in labor. I loved my midwives, like I'm currently trying to figure out how we can become friends in real life kind of love. Um, and after over 40 hours of labor, I was so excited when my midwife Amanda arrived to deliver Maggie. I was so happy to see her that I just burst into tears when she walked in the room. Honey, you're doing so well, she cooed encouragingly. I waddled from the back bedroom to her front bedroom, following her so that she could examine me. And as I lumbered through the kitchen, the sunrise was pouring into the living room, the birth pool was filling slowly from the kitchen tap. We'd flung open our windows in the middle of the night and some moths had flown in. This is gonna be amazing, I thought between contractions. I'm gonna have my baby in an apartment, my apartment specifically, during a sunrise, <laughs> while surrounded by moths and everything will be perfect and nothing will hurt. A few minutes later, my waters broke and we saw that they were filled with something called meconium, which means that Maggie had pooped in the womb. A weird phenomenon if you're unfamiliar with birth, but not uncommon. And yet, it does have some serious risks associated with it. This is a recommendation for hospital transfer, my midwife said. While unlikely, she explained, Maggie might inhale the meconium when she takes her first breath, which, if that happens, can result in asphyxiation and would require emergency intubation to save Maggie's life, to save her lungs. We're all trained in infant intubation, my midwife reassured me, but we've never actually had to do it. Hearing this, I panicked. I was afraid for Maggie, afraid for her life, but equally afraid of driving to the hospital without my midwives. I did not want them to leave us alone. And I couldn't shake that fear. I felt paralyzed in it, frozen between fight and flight. 
After this moment, everything got really intense really fast. We decided we needed to go to the hospital, so Matt and I hopped in the car and drove like breakneck speed. It was the worst car ride of my life. I felt so alone in the back seat, really scared. And in that fear, in that moment of aloneness, I decided, okay, when we get to the hospital, I am just demanding pain medication. I can't do this anymore. There in the car, I was caught in that cycle of escalating fear and pain, and I didn't know how to escape. But when we got to the hospital, where we were once again surrounded by my midwives, I felt such a shift within me. I felt new energy, and I told them, actually, I just need to cross this finish line. No time for drugs, let's just meet this baby. My midwife talked me through every step, and Matt stayed right beside my head, didn't lead my line of vision. I was obviously in pain, but I was so much less afraid because I felt so supported. Maggie was born very soon after, without complications, surrounded by a great cloud of birth workers. People have studied the brain in pain and found that our bodies experience threat cues, things like contractions or fear or the sting of loneliness at more manageable rates when a trusted friend or partner or therapist is on hand. This starts young, too. As infants, responsive caregivers provide a safe space for new little bodies to navigate hard feelings, teaching babies that they won't be overcome by pain or fear. As adults, we are still physiologically more able to weather the stress of pain with the presence of another. It's why Jewish communities sit shiva. It's why we have doulas in birth work. It's why we go to counseling. Even just a photograph of someone we love actually lowers our body's perception of pain and helps us navigate difficult feelings. Isn't that wild? The experience of having someone present to our pain, or even meditating on someone who gives us comfort, actually makes pain a bit more manageable. Our bodies are made to experience those waves of pain and grief and suffering with someone by our side, telling us, even showing us, it's okay to feel this. I'm here with you. Which is one reason this season of isolation is so hard. The way Jesus responds to Mary's grief is empathetic, is present, and is done in solidarity. He is that trusted companion who sits with her in her pain, showing her body that she won't be overcome by the unbearable loneliness of her grief. He is like this to us, too. What if anytime we suffer, we imagine Christ suffering with us like this? Or better yet, what if we imagine suffering as a place that Christ moves into with us? Not trying to fix it, or cheer us up, or say the right thing, but just compassionately in it with us, in our longing with us, in this pandemic with us, in the lonely, scary pain of waiting with us, with us in that wave of grief. As God says through Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. One of my favorite mystics, Julian of Norwich, knew Christ's presence in pain extraordinarily well. After experiencing Christ's presence to her on her deathbed, she wrote the following. If there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it. For it was not shown to me, but this was shown, that in falling and rising again, 
we are always kept in that same precious love. Pain, yes, but never apart from God's precious love. Even in suffering, there is that grace. It's all too easy for pain to ruin us, to let it harden our hearts and embitter us toward each other, to feel angry that there's no answer to why we suffer, and to turn that anger outward towards the suffering world. Otis Moss Jr., that's the father of the Otis Moss III, whom I quoted earlier, he speaks powerfully to this. And as a racialized body who lived through the 60s civil rights movement, I trust his voice on suffering. In a sermon given in 2015, after the Charleston church shooting, where nine black worshipers were shot in an act of racist violence, Moss Jr. explained the dangers of letting pain destroy you. He warned against what he calls pathetic grief. Pathetic grief, he says, is that kind of grief that causes you to be blinded by bitterness, hate, or despair. The kind of grief that puts you in the class of the one who caused the grief. It leaves you diminished, degraded, and in cooperation with the one who diminishes and the one who degrades. Pathetic grief enhances your dying and pulls you out of that which is beautiful, good, and true. Moss Jr. knows that this isn't the kind of grief that Jesus invites us into, nor the kind that Christ modeled, both in his life and on the cross. Otis Moss III, that's the son again, he explains an alternate response to suffering, one that's less, less pathetic, but more empathetic, more compassionate. He says, our hearts have to break in the way that God's heart breaks, in the way that Jesus was lamenting throughout a good portion of his ministry at what he was witnessing. Sometimes turning over tables in anger and in deep pain, or on a tree slash cross saying, forgive them, they just don't know what they're doing. Here he's describing an active, present, and open suffering, one that grieves the pain of the world, one that fights injustice and works towards the flourishing of the world, works towards its peace and shalom. Just as Christ is with us in our pain, he invites us to be the same for others. There are many ways to suffer. A heart can break into violent shards, a broken thing with sharp edges, or a heart can break open open to the pain of others, open to the compassion of God. This idea of living with a broken, open heart is a Buddhist idea originally that was made known to me by a Quaker named Parker Palmer. And it's a way of being, this broken openness to others' pain, that shares so much with the way of Jesus, the one who was broken open to Mary, the one who was broken open to us on the cross. Because Christ's suffering is at the heart of the Incarnation, I know that our Creator takes seriously the whole experience of our embodied selves. It's mess and it's pain, every kind of pain. And for all our questions of why do we suffer, well, the cross is the only answer God really gives. But what a profound answer it is. What a profound response. Part total mystery, it is also part, and perhaps primarily, God's expression of presence and solidarity with those who suffer. And through Christ's death and resurrection, an invitation for all to live into the wholeness of God's life, a life that is broken open for the life of the world. The incarnation shows us that pain is a part of life, but that God is with us in it. 
that God is always responding to our suffering, not intervening to numb it, but in solidarity with us in it, taking our individual body's small share of pain up into his larger whole. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It is a bit odd to talk about being present to our own pain and each other's in this incredibly isolating time, but in some ways that does align with the ache and longing of Advent, doesn't it? And at the same time, uh, we want to equip ourselves to, to deal with this. And so in the announcements, we're going to highlight some ways that, that it might be possible to actually be present to our pain and each other's pain. Uh, some groups where folks can grieve together, and then a way to connect with pastors here, and finally some Advent resources that might open us towards the suffering of others. As we come to the table, we're invited to consider, what will we do with our body's share of the world's pain? And how will we respond to the world's suffering? Remembering that we practice the way of the one who broke himself open to the world's pain, who was broken open for us, and we are invited to be the same, the people broken open to God and each other.